It's episode number 508, and today I'm chatting with Ashley Molman Passio. Let me cue that intro. The big question is this How do we use cycling as a tool to improve our health, our happiness, and our longevity? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Anthony Walsh, and welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Roadman, I am back. I'm back in Dublin. I'm back in the Roadman studio. I'm back having my nice microphone, my nice little deck for mixing all the podcasts together. It was an epic trip to Iceland. Highly, highly recommended. I'll get a proper podcast out tomorrow talking about Iceland, talking about the epic journey. Like, I raced across volcanic ash, through rivers, through glaciers. It was a day just strewn with misfortune, but honestly, up there with the top two or three days I've ever, ever had on the bike. Absolutely unbelievable experience, and I couldn't advocate strongly enough heading out to Iceland to do the rift. It's a beautiful, magical, almost mystical country, and I'm going to get into all that in that rift uh, post-race analysis podcast, but I am stoked to be back in Ireland. You have to go away to come home, and here I am, back home, to Tour de France Avec Zwift, or Tour de Femme, more accurately, Avec Zwift, kicked off this week. So this week, I want to have two episodes dedicated to the girls, because it is a really big, big deal having the first Tour de Femme Avec Zwift, and it was so cool the way it started in Paris as the lads were finishing in Paris. One of the stars is SD Works, Ashley Momompasio, and she joined me just before the race kicked off, talking about her training and her preparation. If you don't know who Ashley is, she's one of the biggest stars in women's cycling. She's the former World Zwift Indoor Champion. She is the founder of Rockacoba Collective, which is an amazing place to go and base yourself if you're heading out to Girona. It's just truly magical it's at the foothills of Rocacoba and Banyos and it's an amazing community that Ashley's building right there so I'm going to link Ashley's social Rocacoba collective and all the amazing things that Ashley is doing in the bio thoroughly enjoyable interview and I think it's at an important time because what separated women's and men's cycling for a long time, it's awareness and it's viewership and it's podcasts like this and media outlets like Eurosport covering these races. So I really welcome Lance Armstrong and the lads at The Move extending their coverage for an extra week and I want to likewise give coverage to the girls this week. So it's my honour and privilege to welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast one of the biggest stars in female cycling, Ashley Momon Passio. Hi, Anthony. Um, it's great to be here. How was your altitude? Well, I've um, just started, so I arrived um, on Monday. Um, and yeah, I've done two um, nice easy rides, adaptation rides, and it's just really great to be up in the mountains, um, yeah, to be in the beautiful scenery, the fresh air, and I have to be honest, also nice to have a bit of quiet time. So I'm on my own. And um, I'm quite happy to be on my own because it's been a, a busy start to the season uh, with a lot of noise, a lot of activities. Uh, and so now I'm taking some time uh, to myself and to reflect. So where are you for altitude? So I'm in uh, Fontremeau or um, a little bit above Fontremeau. So it's called Belcure uh, Pyrenees 2000. It's in France, um, but it's very close to Andorra. So, you know, there's this point where Spain, um, France and Andorra pretty much um, come together. And uh, that's where I am at the moment. I prefer to be in France rather than in Andorra, just because where I'm positioned, um, it's really easy to access uh, 
um, Spain, Andorra and France. I can leave every day uh, from my doorstep without having to climb like a 20k uh, mountain to get back. Um, and it's just easier to access the Puchada area, which is a little bit of a, um, a flatter sort of um, area, which suits easier riding. And so what's the protocol for your altitude? How long are you going to stay there for? Are you training high, sleeping high, training high, sleeping, or training low, sleeping high? That gets confusing. Try and say that one fast. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, I'm here for three weeks. Um, it's the first time I'm up at altitude in the mountains. Um, I also have an altitude tent at home. Um, and I usually use the altitude tent um, earlier in the year, sort of in preparation for the spring classics. Uh, because in that case, I believe um, it's the best um, because firstly, you know, the weather can be really bad at altitude early in the year. Um, and then also, you know, in preparation for the one day classics, um, you don't really want to um, exclude the VO2 or the really high intensity work. You want to stay sharp. Um, so then the altitude tent works really well because you sleep high and you train low. So you can keep your uh, training intensity, but you still get the benefits of um, altitude at nighttime while you're sleeping. Um, but then, you know, in preparation for the tours, um, it changes a little bit. I like to come up to the mountains um, because firstly, you know, in the mountains, you have access to all the long climbs. Um, you know, it's a bit more endurance based. Um, so I'm sleeping high and training a combination of high and low, uh, but it would never be lower than let's say a thousand meters. Um, so if I'm doing high intensity work, I tend to go a bit lower. Um, and if I'm doing endurance rides, then I'm just riding in the mountains up and down high and low um, throughout the day. And then, yeah, up in a cabin at 1,800 meters um, for all the other time of the day and for sleeping. Some real proper Rocky Balboa stuff going on up there. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's really great to be up in the mountains because yeah, I mean, I have a lot going on um, in my life. You know, I'm a pro uh, rider for SD Works, but uh, I also have a business, Rock Corber Cycling, and uh, a virtual community, Rock Corber Collective. Um, so I uh, keep myself very busy um, every day with training and, and all sorts of other things. So it's quite nice um, to be up in the mountains, to be, um, yeah, alone in a little cabin, um, a small cabin, so everything's really close. Um, even, you know, the washing machine, the kettle, um, the bed, you know, it's all very close together because at Rock Corps Cycling, sometimes I have to walk quite big distances. <laughs> and I guess it's a stress reduction as well because there's no such thing as non-physical stress. And that's the part that a lot of people miss. Mental stress, worrying about the business, cash flowing in, cash flowing out, that manifests itself physically and is going to take away from your performance ultimately. Well, yeah, and this is an interesting one because I I believed that, or for many years, um, people have have led me to believe um, that these kind of things are bad for my performance. So, um, you know, being involved in business or um, thinking and uh, being sort of innovative um, in my, you know, um, relaxation time um, is bad for my performance. But, um, you know, as my career has evolved, I've actually started to learn um, that that's not necessarily the case. Um, so, you know, I got into cycling later in life. I studied a, a degree first um, in process engineering and then got into, you know, while I was studying, that's when I, I discovered my talent for cycling. So ever since I've been um, a pro cyclist, you know, I've always had that sort of problem solving analytical mindset. And um, in the beginning, people really tried to to encourage me to switch that off and to only ride um, and focus on riding, uh, resting, 
um, and eating, you know, but I was, uh, there was a part of me that was unfulfilled, um, you know, the mental part or the thinking, the analytical part. Um, and so what I found is that because I wasn't um, stimulating myself in other areas of life, I would overthink racing and training, which actually became uh, counterproductive um, as well, because actually to be a really good pro cyclist on the road, you need to be instinctive, you know, you need to be just in the moment and responding to the 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 racing tactics and how your body is feeling. And if you overthink things, um, generally it doesn't uh, manifest in the best results. So as my career has progressed and people have started to understand me better and allowed me to do these other things, I believe I'm actually performing at my best because I'm getting the mental stimulus elsewhere. And so when I race, um, I'm really in the moment of racing. But it's also like you're going into your 13th season as a pro in Europe, if I'm right. So there's a longevity piece to it. I'm sure there's girls that come into the sport and we see it in the guys, uh, professional peloton as well. They come in and they sit, hit it super, super hard and focused. But fires that burn very bright often burn for a very short period of time. Whereas you have have these sort of extracurricular activities, uh, you know, coming from you know third level educated i suppose to start because definitely in the male professional peloton third level education is a little bit of a rarity is it the same in the female peloton um i think up until this point it, it isn't a rarity um but it, it is starting to change um as women cycling um is sort of moving forward progressing the salaries are, are getting better the exposure is getting better um it does mean that it's becoming a real career choice uh, for women. And I think uh, the Tour de Femme avec Zwift is really an example of this. You know, for the first time um, in many, many years, young girls can watch the Tour de France and see women racing. And this is really the turning point because now, you know, young girls can aspire to become a pro cyclist as a career choice. But Where is that a double-edged sword, actually? Because uh, what I love about your story is that you went and you have a third-level education, which has allowed you to, yes, be a professional cyclist, but also to build Rocker Coba and to analyze problems in a different way. And you're, you know, uh, my background is law. And although I don't work in law anymore, I still use it every day in every single decision I make, weighing up pros and cons in a different level than if I didn't have that law degree. And I look at the male pro peloton and I worry about it at a moment. I worry about the Remco Evanpol effect where every team is now taking as young a kids as they can. They're bringing in so many young kids and they're like, okay, if I bring in 10 young kids and maybe one of them comes true, great. They don't care about the other nine to go on the scrap heap and have to drop out of school and have to give up on all their career ambitions. So it's like, yes, when the money comes and the big contracts come, it's brilliant because it's a viable career path, but it also becomes less compatible to balancing this stuff with third level education. I totally agree with you. Um, and so, you know, I'm definitely an advocate for, for um, pursuing some kind of third level education, whether that's part time, you know, in the early years of, of your career. Um, or whether, you know, I'm also an advocate that teams could start to include um, a, a kind of a cycling-specific um, third-level education That's within, a great idea. within the cycling team, you know, so to, to kind of make it sort of cycling-specific, you know, um, covering, you know, topics from marketing to financial management um, to, yeah, I don't know, analytical thinking or even practical things like servicing a bike, for example. And marketing is such an easy, brilliant one at the moment, because like, if you think about 
the sponsors and really the the model of cycling sponsorship is closer to philanthropy than it is anything return on investment for a lot of sponsors but there are athletes who are getting plugged into their their worth as a brand and they're stepping outside the team dynamic and i'm thinking of guys who aren't even racing at the top level like Corey and justin williams at legion like the brand deals these guys are bringing in are huge brand deals for you know with respect to the two guys, quite a low level of professional cycling. But that's with just, uh, you know, real keen interest in marketing. But if you started to see that marketing head, you know, developed in some sort of systematic way within teams, it could really open a new dimension of sponsorship. Yeah, for sure. I definitely think um, that cycling sponsorship is evolving, that the focus on, um, you know, winning is actually starting to change. And I mean, don't get me wrong, winning is still important and it's great to win bike races. But I think it's, um, you know, being a pro cyclist is so much more than winning. And I think um, to be able to really relate or for, for the audience, the cycling fan base, to be able to relate to athletes these days, it goes beyond winning. It goes more into who the person is, the story behind the athlete and um, their ability to to make themselves relatable, you know, and that's what um, provides longevity to their brand, basically, because if people start to um, kind of want to to know who you are and what you're up to, um, rather than, you know, just seeing when you win a bike race, I think that creates opportunity, you know, down the line. Um, and it's interesting, because I've just been thinking a lot about this recently around how I think pro cycling is actually such a big contradiction, because, um, you know, as you just mentioned, you know, pro teams are signing youngsters, um, you know, because they want to bring them into the fold and kind of form them and almost like control their thinking, you know, and um, produce, you know, the machines that, that win bike races. But then, um, you know, this we're encouraged to have this sort of rigid mindset where you train at the same time of day, you eat the same foods, you know, it's, it's all processes and, and rigidity. But then when we get into the bike race, you know, it's totally um, the opposite. You know, you, you have to think fast. Um, the situation is constantly changing. You know, you have to adapt. Um, and so I find this such a big contradiction. And I, I saw this manifest like before my eyes, you know, in particular recently with my teammates um, at a race block in Spain where we were taking part in different races at different organizations. And it meant that the race started at different times in the day. And the biggest topic of conversation was, oh, you know, I don't like this time um, to start a race because I don't know what to eat, you know. So it just shows <laughs> the rigidity, you know, in their mindset. Yet, you know, in the race situation, we've got to be able to adapt, you know, and even if we injure ourselves or, you know, it, we're actually supposed to be really flexible, but yet we are, um, yeah, we're encouraged to be, you know, rigid. It's really strange. I think we're also at a strange junction in both male and female cycling in that if I look at, we run a weekly group ride for the podcast every Saturday morning. And if I, I haven't advertised the weekly group ride beyond word of mouth. And if I look at the demographic that's been attracted to the group ride, both male and female, they have very little interest in pro cycling. They have almost a disconnect from pro cycling. I could name the biggest male or female stars to to this group. And they'd look at you like with blank faces and blank expressions. But yet so much of our focus in this in you know our little introverted cycling world is on these big stars but it's leaving behind that like the mass participation element of the sport who ultimately they'll drive the purchases and they'll drive you know most of the marketing decisions over the next 10 years 
Exactly. And this is the interesting thing. Um, you know, you're very right. If you really look into the statistics um, and, you know, we look into how many people actually follow pro cycling, you know, the number is pretty small if you um, compare it to the number of people that ride bikes. Um, and so this is actually kind of where my thinking started with the whole Rock Corba cycling uh, project or business, you know, in terms of, you know, I felt, well, I still feel that cycling is a very disconnected industry. You know, you have pro cycling, you have the brands, you have events, you have cycling tourism, but they don't always, um, you know, work very well or speak very well uh, to one another. So that was my initial um, motivation to do the Rock Corba cycling project, you know, to connect your cycling tourism industry closer to the pro sport. And so exactly what you're talking about, you know, people who come to Rock Corba cycling, some of them come because they know who I am and they want to, you know, meet me or, or support my business. But um, also a lot of the people that come have no idea. But after they visited um, and they get to know me or they know, you know, what, who the person is behind Rock Corba cycling, they start to follow. You know, yeah. so that's the interesting thing. And that's what I'm talking about in terms of relatability rather than um, the performance or, or winning a bike race. It's the fact that people meet the, the athlete, the person, they like who they meet and then they have the interest to follow. Um, and so, you know, I've seen this um, in a small capacity within, you know, the physical Rockacorba cycling as a cycling tourism business. And then, you know, with the COVID pandemic, um, I opened my mind to upscaling that, and that's where the Rock Corba Collective, as the virtual community, comes into it. Because all of a sudden, you know, you don't have to be in the same place at the same time to connect with the people. Um, so yeah, I'm seeing such a great response in terms of, you know, virtual community where um, you know everyday cyclists are um, connecting with me and my esports teammates uh, through the Rock Corba Collective, and and are therefore being converted to becoming fans of the pro racing so because they know who we are they watch the racing yeah i'm totally shocked and it's something i'm giving a lot of energy and thought to at the moment i'm shocked as to how we're onboarding new listeners into the podcast the podcast last six months the growth has been insane but and we've had really big guests in the world of pro cycling like george hincapie was on a few weeks ago you know it doesn't get much bigger in the male side of the sport than george hincapie but each week consistently since i introduced it maybe eight weeks ago the most downloaded episode is a friday episode that i co-host with my girlfriend and it's called newbie questions and she's just started cycling maybe six months ago and she asks all the stupid questions that you know we didn't know the answers to when we got started like how come i can't turn my bike upside down if i puncture you know how do i how come i keep getting this chain ring mark on the inside of my calf and every single week the email feedback from this episode and the instagram dms i get from this episode they far outstrip even the biggest name guests in the sport and it, it's just blown my mind that it's a it's opening and having a conversation with a group that we have neglected as a cycling industry for so long. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about it, cycling is a very intimidating um, sport, you know. Uh, you really, you know, as a person, when you get out on a bike um, and you ride on the roads, I mean, it's, it, it provides incredible freedom and, and an amazing experience, but at the same time, you know, we're very vulnerable when we're out on the bike, um, you know, especially if you're alone as a woman, you know, you might puncture and not be able to, to fix it. You know, cars are, are driving past, um, you know, in some parts of the world, uh, safety is a real issue, you know. Um, so if we think about that, you know, there's a lot of barriers to entry. Um, and so that's the interesting thing. How do we get more people on 
to bikes to experience the beauty of it, you know, the freedom, the nature, um, the, you know, the, the positive of being fit and active. Um, and that's where I've seen actually the virtual world and indoor cycling um, as a great opportunity because it's a lot less intimidating for someone to start um, from the safety of their own home on an indoor trainer um, on a platform like Swift where, you know, they don't have to worry about punctures, about crashing, about cars, about safety. Um, they don't even have to worry about, you know, how will they be perceived, you know, body image, dressing up in lycra, you know, maybe they're, you know, lacking confidence or feeling like they're a little bit overweight, you know, all of these things um, aren't an issue if if you're on an indoor trainer. So I really, you know, during the COVID pandemic and, um, you know, embracing indoor cycling, which was not something I enjoyed uh, before the COVID pandemic, but embracing it and really opening my mind to it, I started to see what a great platform it is to to grow cycling and this talks to both men and women but in particular to women because it's it's so much um, more accessible and uh, less intimidating it's really interesting you your recent article if anyone hasn't checked it out in this month's edition of roller is brilliant and it got the it got the cogs in my head spinning because i'll be totally honest with you i hate indoor training and I can think of nothing worse, especially living, you know, at the foothills of Rockercoba in beautiful banyols than getting stuck on an indoor bike and looking at a screen. It, it, it feels like it, we've tried to distill cycling into something that it's not because cycling isn't just power to weight. Cycling, it, like almost anyone can get a good power to weight ratio with a bit of discipline and effort and some consistency, but it takes a lot of years to have that poise that balance that elegance to go around corners to move around a bunch that takes time and i've pushed back quite heavily at times on the podcast against the zwift indoor cycling culture but when i read your article it got me second guessing everything i say on the podcast sometimes i have strong opinions held loosely and this is one of the opinions that i had quite strong that when i heard you talking about the inclusive nature of indoor cycling i thought okay, actually, everything you're saying is right because cycling should be inclusive. It shouldn't be exclusionary. And often meeting up with a group on a Saturday morning, even our group, which I think is, you know, super uh, welcoming for everyone, it's still intimidating because you still have, you know, people wearing light gray. You still have people wearing matching kiss. There's still a certain etiquette that's kind of secret to you if you're not in the in the clique. But none of that exists in the world of esports. Exactly. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I was totally against indoor cycling before the COVID pandemic. And I mean, the main reason why, okay, well, firstly, it's the freedom that the bike represents, hey, getting out on your bike. As you say, I mean, I live in the cycling paradise of Girona. So, you know, the, the um, road choices are endless. It's beautiful. It's safe to ride out on your road. Um, and also another big obstacle for me was the fact that you know, I'm very much into power and data. And so, um, you know, indoor cycling was always seen as, um, you know, bad weather alternatives. So let's say it was a bad weather day and I had to do intervals. Um, I even still hated getting on the indoor trainer because I wasn't able to reach the numbers I'd usually be able to do out on the road. And I found this very frustrating. But with the COVID pandemic, I mean, I had no other choice. I was in Spain with a hard lockdown. So we were not allowed to leave our homes. So, and at that point, you know, the Olympic Games were still happening. There was a big disparity through, um, throughout the world in terms of who could ride outdoors and who couldn't. Um, and so I kind of felt like, 
well, okay, this isn't ideal, but if I want to, to keep up with everyone else and um, be sure that if the Olympic Games happens that I'm ready, you know, I have to embrace it and I have to try to make the most out of it. And, you know, the first couple of sessions when I got on the indoor train, it was that same frustration, you know, doing an interval session, I couldn't get my power numbers. And time moves so slow. Exactly. But then, you know, the first thing that sort of opened up to me was the fact that, okay, it's really social. So on Zwift, you can meet up with people from all around the world. Uh, it first it started off first by meeting up with a group of pros. Um, you know, some Italian pros had, had invited me to to a meetup, and so I was like, oh wow, we're all at home, um, stuck in in our houses, but we're on Zwift and it's social. You know, this is cool, and so that's when I started to open my mind. You know, I could ride with family in South Africa, friends all around the world. Um, and my writing started to become more social than it had ever been before. So the social aspect was the first thing that got to me. Then the second sort of pin drop moment was the fact that Rock Corbus Cycling was closed. We weren't allowed to have any guests. But how did, how did I ensure that we kept relevance, that we stayed in the minds of either our um, you know, upcoming guests and past guests? And so I thought, okay, well, I need to host a ride on Rock Corbus Cycling and invite um, all of these potential guests and past guests to join me. And so that was the another sort of uh, pin drop moment. And then, you know, as I started doing my intervals and um, week in, week out, adapting to the indoor trainer and the, uh, um, you know, the unnatural resistance, my body started to adapt and I saw my numbers increase. And I got to a point where I could hold the same power numbers as what I did on the road. And that's when my mind really opened, you know, then I started to explore Zwift and I started to realize, well, you know, I like to do, um, for example, my heel um, repeats. I like to do it on one climb, which is usually Rokokoba. Well, in Zwift, I can do the same thing. I can go to Elp to Zwift. I can ride up for 10, 15, 20 minutes, turn around, go down. You know, I can do exactly what I do outdoors. I can do indoors. Um, and yeah, so my whole mind opened to this platform and yeah, since then I have, I, I, don't, I haven't looked back and the important thing though, cause I do see your point around, um, cycling in the real world. And I, I do, I recognize the beauty of it and I agree, you know, that you, you'll never be able to, to, um, you know, create all those adaptations in terms of, you know, cornering, um, climbing out of your saddle, learning how to use your bike. You can't do that on Zwift. You have to do that outdoors. So the important thing is to find balance. And so, I mean, I think I've really perfected that right now. You know, I do at least one um, indoor session a week, which is a, a interval session, um, because I find those sessions really valuable in terms of being able to access um, real good focus and get the best out of my body because I don't have any other distractions. I don't have to worry about cars. I don't have to worry about, you know, the road or a pothole. I can just focus on, you know, making the connection between mind and body and getting the best out of myself. Um, and then, you know, there's also the social elements. So often what I do is I might even split one ride to do some outdoors and some indoors so that I get the best of both worlds. Like today I've done part of my ride outdoors and now this evening I'm doing a social ride with my Rockacorba collective so I was all on my own for the endurance ride enjoying the beauty the nature um, the freedom of being on the bike and now this evening I can you know satisfy the social element of, of joining my collective riding together on Zwift because I think balance is the key word to pull out from that that really strikes me because we have seen this proliferation of cat 4 crashes 
post pandemic lockdown because everybody that was getting into the sport their only exposure was Zwift racing and obviously you can ride like straight through somebody because they're translucent characters in Zwift but that's actually not the same when you go and try and do a cat four bunch sprints and you try and ride through somebody normally he ends up in accident and emergency but balance I think is the key there like you're talking about yeah, balance is, is really the key. And, you know, the other thing that is important to acknowledge is that you will have people who are indoor cyclists. They're pure Zwifters or, you know, virtual cyclists, whatever platform they use. And we we shouldn't judge them for that. You know, they have their reasons. Um, and, yeah, at least they're riding their bike. They fit, they're active, um, which is a great thing. But then you have the others who maybe, you know, they're introduced to cycling um, in the virtual world because it's less intimidating and then as they build their confidence they head outdoors and of course you hope that they'd be part of of a club or a community that helps them to realize that you know riding indoors and outdoors is quite different so you know they shouldn't enter a race outdoors until they've learned how to ride in a bunch um, but yeah I mean balance you know in, in that case is really the ultimate. If you can find the balance between indoor and outdoor cycling and learn the benefits of both, that to me is the ultimate cyclist. But yeah, we need to accept. I've always accepted those who only like riding indoors and those who are completely against riding indoors and only want to ride outdoors. And I don't want I don't want to force anybody to to come to the realization that I've had. Like, I don't expect everybody to enjoy um, riding both virtually and in the real world. But I do like to share my experience because it maybe does help some to open their mind. Maybe those who only ride indoors to open their mind to riding outdoors. Well, definitely open mind, and I was the biggest skeptic. <laughs> well, that's really great then. I, I've I've achieved something today. And I so anyone that hasn't been following Ashley's journey, she didn't she's been quite humble and modest. She didn't just like take to indoor riding and you know meeting up with some friends. You're the indoor Zwift esports world champion. Yes, not you the were... one, just to correct you. Um but yeah, 2020 um I won the first esports uh, world title and yeah, that was really special. Is it a super? Because I know you have won uh, the world title on it. Jay Vine, who I've had on the podcast a bunch of times, has been world champion on it as well. I'm not sure. I haven't looked at the Strava leaderboard recently, but at one point you were the female queen of the mountains and Jay was the male king of the mountains on the Rukakoba climb. So I'm wondering, is there a correlation here with riders with extremely high power to weight ratios performing well in Zwiftland? Yeah, well, there is a big correlation because, of course, um, the game is based on power to weight. It's an algorithm. It's a mathematical calculation. And so power to weight is a big part of that. However, um, the Zwift game, uh, again, you know, my, all of my experience is really on Zwift and, and it's my platform of choice. So hence why I'm talking mostly about Zwift. Um, but Zwift has um yeah they've evolved the algorithm over time you know they've tried to create um a slightly more realistic or um exciting sort of element to it so you know for example even with the most current esports uh, world championships uh, it, it finished up a climb but i wouldn't say that power to weight was the biggest element um in this particular climb because it had sort of flat sections it came in steps and and in the flat sections um, you know, the draft effect was quite big. 
um, and therefore made it difficult uh, for the really light climbers to to really get away. So, you know, it's a game and we, we have to accept that. You know, it's never going to be exactly the same as the real world. You know, it's all based on mathematical formulas. Um, and so it's important that when you, you ride on Zwift and race in Zwift that you accept this. You know, it's a game and enjoy it for what it is, you know, embrace the game element of it, embrace using the power-ups. Um, it's it's really quite tactical, you know, you need to learn uh, the timing of using the power-ups, you need to do root recons to to determine where to use the power-ups, um, you know, which power-ups are the best, you know, which parts of, of the route um, is best suited to your ability, you know, it becomes quite technical and as it evolves, it will become more so. Um, but yes, there definitely is um, a strong correlation between climbing races on Zwift and power to weight ratio, just as they would be in the road as well. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm still the queen of the mountains um, on Rock. <laughs> just dropped that one there, mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just to confirm that one, because Rock of Corbett, it's my mountain. So, you know, I've got to make sure that I keep that one. I love that Zwift are trying to iterate and they are trying to figure out because I did read a, a blog post it's a couple of years ago now, but with the with the algorithm they had at that point, Matthew Vanderpoel wouldn't have even been in the top 100 esports riders in the world, despite being, you know, undoubtedly one of the top 10 bike riders in the world. But the challenge I see them having in the next couple of years, it's the problem with weight and people lying about their weight and the solution to this seems to be sending a picture of yourself on a weighing scales and we're in a very precarious position in both male and female cycling around mental health weight eating disorders and Swift really i think has to be careful with navigating this line between leveling the playing field and encouraging very unhealthy eating practices yeah, 100%. Um, but I mean, this this exists um, in the real world as well as the virtual world. I mean, eating disorders and power to weight and uh, being aggressive with weight, it exists in the real world as well. We see it um, manifesting day in, day out. Um, but yes, 100%. And it's something um, that... You know, it's it's going to take time with the evolution of esports as a dis, as a discipline. Um, and to be honest, I have been involved in a lot of conversations around this because you know, as esports esports is evolving as a discipline, you know, they have to keep keep up, you know, with how it's evolving. And yeah, there are a lot of challenges uh, to overcome at the moment. So weigh-ins is one of of the challenges. Um, you know, they've come up with a very comprehensive protocol, which I believe um, is is very accurate. You know, it's it's quite it's quite comprehensive. It can be quite daunting, to be honest, because, you know, you have to take a video of yourself in your kit. Um, you know, there's a whole lot of things. You know, the scale has to be you have to show that it's in the middle of the room so that there's nothing that you can hold on to. Now you even have to, yeah, I mean, you have to lift up your scale to make sure because even surfaces um, can can influence weight, you know, so you have to lift up your scale, you have to use a um, a, a specific, you know, defined weight um, to, to show that it is reading the correct uh, weight, that it's calibrated. I mean, it, it's quite a comprehensive process and I think it's... Um, it's legitimate, you know. If you if you have to do that exact process, your weight is legit. But I mean, there's many challenges. Like with the Premier League, I had conversations around with the UCI and with Swift with the fact that, you know, the time of day is quite important because if if someone um, in a specific time zone is weighing themselves first thing in the morning, it's very different to the person who's weighing themselves at the end of the day. You know? And do you have to weigh in on race day, or can I? 
like go full Katie Taylor boxing protocol on this and just cut weight in the sauna all day long and then jump on the weigh scales? Two hours before the race. Okay. So yeah. So it used to be, um, you know, at first it was within 24 hours um, of the race, but more recently it's, it's been, um, you know, adjusted to be two hours before. And this is where I believe, you know, it has created a more unhealthy uh, relationship because as I said, the time zone effect, some people are weighing first thing in the morning and some are weighing at the end of the day. And there's no way of escaping the fact that if you weigh yourself at the end of the day, you are inevitably going to weigh more because I've never done it. I, I just, I couldn't even no fathom doing it. No one <laughs> at the end of the day because it's water retention, you know, all these type of things, you know, when, first thing, when you wake up in the morning, you have to acknowledge that as you've been breathing throughout the night, you lose water. So your weight first thing in the morning is always going to be your best weight, you know? So this was quite a big thing for even me to overcome because racing the world championships, of course I was weighing myself at the end of the day. Um, you know, so yes, it, it is important that, um, that this is constantly, you know, that, that Zwift and the UCI invite the input of the actual races, because I think it's important, you know, in the sport to understand how it is for the actual cyclists that are racing, you know, and I've shared a lot of my insight on that. I think that two hours before the race is a little bit aggressive um, because it does create a very stressful situation. You know, if we even look at eating, you know, um, usually I'd eat three hours before I I race. And Maybe now, something like a seven-day trend or something like that and taking the average yeah, I mean, we. I think there's still a lot of work to be done to find the optimum, you know, weigh-in uh, protocol and routine, you know, in terms of, you know, it becomes, if you're weighing in two hours before every single race and you're racing multiple times a week or every single week, you know, it becomes really stressful. It becomes uh, nearly like a whereabouts requirement where you're going to have, like, knock on the door, get on the weighing scales or doing your body fat calipers. Well, you know, I think this might actually have to become part of it. So a, a weighing whereabouts, exactly. So that, you know, someone randomly pitches up after a race and, and weighs you. And, yeah, I mean, obviously there could always be a one kilogram discrepancy. But if there's a five kilogram discrepancy, then for sure something's uh, totally out of whack, you know. So weighing um, is, is one thing. But yeah, I, I do believe that, that esports is, is a great discipline and it's something that, that needs to evolve. And I, I believe that it's going to become important. Um, but yeah, of course, there's, there's things that, challenges that need to be overcome. You know, it's even discrepancies in hardware, you know, that, that needs to be overcome. At this point, you know, um, the most important races like a world championships, there's always a hardware sponsor. And everyone's on the same hardware. But if you're racing um, other races, you know, like the like a Premier League within Zwift, and everyone's on different hardware, you know, there's there's discrepancies. So yeah, there's a there's a lot of teething issues to overcome. But at the moment, I would say the positives outweigh the negatives. Zooming out from Zwift and more broadly looking at female professional cycling, how big of a problem is eating disorders in the pro peloton at the moment? Um, I think it's it's a bigger problem in men's cycling than women's cycling, if I'm, really? if I'm totally honest. Like, if you actually had to have a look at the men's peloton, I think you'd find a lot more, you know, borderline cases um, than what you do in women's cycling. However, um, the spotlight is more on women, you know. So if we are a little bit aggressive with our weight, um, then, you know, we're very quickly judged. Whereas it's somehow just tolerated in in men's cycling so if someone's really lean um then they're almost applauded for it like oh wow you're on great form you know you're ready for the tour um but if 
if a woman is a little bit aggressive, then yeah, we judged. Oh, she has an eating disorder. We do so, have so many of these societal double standards, though. Yeah, I mean it, it's crazy. But as I said, I think within the women's peloton, I can confidently say that the majority of the women's peloton is really healthy. And I think that's got to do with the fact that the style of racing is also different. You know, uh, we have um, hugely, most of our racing is is very punchy. Um, it's explosive, uh, which means that, you know, it does, it does favor a healthy athlete, you know. Um, whereas in men's cycling, you know, there are more grand tours, big mountain stages. And that's obviously what, what kind of pushes the boundaries in terms of of weight you know and power to weight ratio so i'd say majority of the women's peloton is really healthy there are of course a couple of cases uh where you know there is unhealthy relationship and of course eating disorders um are prevalent but yeah i mean the interesting thing the big difference between men and women is that in the men's peloton although you do have you know at the tour de france you might look at some guys and think wow okay they need to eat something um but the fact of men is, is that they they do that for performance. So it's a marginal gain. So most of the guys within the peloton, there are unhealthy cases of, of eating disorders, but usually it's something that they do for the marginal gain. So they do it for a short period of time. So they lose weight to be ready for the Tour de France, but then they'll put on weight again, you know, at um, other parts of the season or definitely in the off season. But the dangerous thing with women is that, we we don't generally like to do that you know women like to maintain a certain weight and so if a if a woman becomes a little bit more aggressive and they lose weight and then see an increase in their performance generally speaking that woman would want to maintain that weight and that's where the dangerous um nature of of you know the the weight and uh, marginal gain element comes into women's cycling because maintaining a really aggressive race, weight for many years is very unhealthy. Whereas if you had to do it specifically for performance for a specific period of time and then put on weight again, yeah, yo-yoing weight is also not great, you know, for women because of, of our hormones, but it's more healthy than uh, maintaining a really aggressive weight for a long period of time. So, I, I mean, I hope that kind of makes sense what I'm yeah. trying to for sure like i think it, for me it's you're always going to have like if you step away from cycling you look at society at large there is eating problems you know it's not this isn't an exclusively cycling problem but when i look and i had yanni brakovich used to ride for radio shack on the podcast and his was an extreme example he was talking about winning a stage in he was in a two-up break with alberto contador he sprinted won the stage at the top of optoways in the criterium the dauphine and he went in straight into the hotel to make himself sick after the stage to get back up all the energy bars and gels that he had because he felt he was too heavy for the upcoming stages and i was like my heart was breaking listening to him telling this story that he was in such a position and he felt an institutional pressure to keep his weight down and steve cummings i'm not sure if you've had a chance to read any of his book that just came out but he was talking about a team sky they had this idea of fruit days where you would have two pieces of fruit five times a day so you would open your training peaks and it would say today's a fruit day and it would mean two pieces of fruit five times a day and that was it and they do an endurance or a recovery ride but no other food on or off the bike and they tested a lot of this stuff on Steve Cummings to see if it would work. And if it was working, then they would apply it to Bradley Wiggins. And that's a problem. Oh, that's a really big problem. So exactly, as I said, it's more unhealthy in men's cycling than it is in women's cycling. 
I certainly don't see any of that um, being encouraged um, in in women's teams. You know, in general, you know, it's the other side. You know, we're encouraged and uh, not to be too aggressive with our weight um, and rather to to look at optimizing power and training, you know, so so rather getting the best out of our training and trying to improve our power before we, we drop weight. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely, you know, haven't seen any team in women's cycling um, that encourages this kind of aggressive approach uh, to losing weight. Um, I think, you know, it's a topic that needs to be discussed uh, more and more uh, because, you know, a, a case for myself, like, I, there are periods of time where I'm pretty aggressive with my weight. I know what my optimum race weight is, especially when it comes to, to the tours or where it's really long climbing. And I know what my optimum race weight is when it comes to, to the classics, you know, the short punchy stuff. And so, you know, through the season, uh, my, weight, my weight changes a little bit. And as I said, with the most aggressive weight, I wouldn't want to keep that for too long. It would only be for a couple of weeks, at most six weeks um, in, in the season. But I've, I've developed the ability to be able to do that in the most healthy way possible. So with the help of nutritionists, um, especially, you know, I have a great nutritionist, uh, Jenny Powell. Uh, she is uh, British and um, I love the, the way Jenny approaches uh, nutrition and weight loss uh, because she's, she's very honest. Um, she doesn't beat around the bush. If you have an aggressive goal, she helps you find find the most healthy way to achieve that goal, but then she'll also be totally realistic. You know, it, you can't maintain that for a very long period of time. So you need to choose what your goal is, and then you know, shoot for that. But then allow yourself a time in the year where you you just allow your body to be and eat what you want to eat. Um, but yeah, I mean, so the the important thing is, you know, when it comes to losing weight for a specific goal, it's important to know which days you can cut calories because, of course. You only lose weight by cutting calories. So there has to be a calorie deficit to be able to lose weight. But um, it is possible to do this in a healthy way. If you just, um, you identify the days where it's it's a no-go, you know. So if it's interval days, the day before an interval session, I would never cut calories. Because in these days, energy is really, really important. But on a long endurance ride, it's a different story. And I wouldn't go for a long endurance ride without consuming any carbohydrates I just consume a bit less. So in general, especially, you know, on a long endurance ride where I'm looking to, to lose a bit of weight, then I cut my, my carbohydrate intake to like, let's say, 30 grams of carb an hour. Um, so there are healthy ways of doing this. But yeah, I've, I've never seen in women's cycling uh, only fruit day. Fruit days. <laughs> uh, actually, to finish up, we couldn't uh, have a podcast at this time of year without talking about the Tour de France Femme. Uh, how important... How excited for this event are you and how important is it for women's cycling? Oh, the Tour de Femme avec Swift is, is just amazing and it's really important for, for women's cycling. I, I sort of touched on it a bit earlier, but the real importance of it is the fact that, you know, for the, for the first time in many, many years, women's cycling will be associated with the biggest bike race in the world. You know, there's no way of beating around the bush. The Tour de France is the biggest bike race in the world. It's the one race that everyone all around the world knows about. And yeah, for the first time in many years, the women's cycling have that platform and that um, exposure. And I think it's just going to be absolutely massive, um, not only because of the exposure and the 
people all around the world um, knowing about it, but young girls being able to watch women racing, the biggest bike race in the world, because that's when the sport really starts to grow, when young girls can identify and think, well, I want to be a pro cyclist um, one day. So yeah, it's really, really special, and I'm looking uh, forward to it. For me, the real turning point uh, for women's cycling was actually the COVID pandemic. It's really strange because it was such a, a tough time for the world, a ch challenging time, and Many people thought that women's cycling would take um, a knock because of the COVID pandemic, because, you know, the priority would be placed on um, regaining, you know, racing and exposure for the men. But it's been the total opposite because of the COVID pandemic and the racing on Zwift, the virtual platform, uh, which uh, prioritizes equality. It's because of this that we have a Tour de France avec Zwift. So Zwift have also put their money where their mouth is. They've invested in women's cycling and they've given us the platform to shine. And which is really interesting, if you trace back the origins of the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia, these were initially marketing vehicles at their very inception. And now the fact that Zwift are getting involved and you know catching this publicity of this tidal wave of women's cycling that's just beginning is a super interesting way to position it for them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, we... We're performers, you know, uh, we're, we're there to put on a show. Um, and so, yeah, pro cycling, it's all about marketing. It's all about performance. Um, and that's where I think women's cycling for many years really got it wrong. They missed it, especially a race like uh, the Giro d'Italia. You know, in the many years previously that I raced the Giro, it was like the secret race. You know, nobody knew about it. But yet we were putting in so much time and energy and effort um, to win a race like that and nobody saw it and it felt it, it felt kind of pointless and the big problem was that the race like the Giro didn't quite get the fact that they have to market it you know for people to to watch you know people don't just pitch up you know you have to make sure that people know about it um, and so that's the important thing I mean uh, the Tour de France does an incredible job of marketing the race and attracting the audience. Um, and so, yeah, I think that the Tour de Femme avec Swift, Swift have done a great job of, you know, doing a super shoot um, a couple of months ago, you know, in a, in a big studio in, in Brussels, trying to get as many pros in to um, collect uh, content and to be able to spread the word. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, their big initiative is, you know, watch the thumbs. So, um, yeah, let's hope that there are plenty of people watching us and um, giving us the numbers that we need uh, to be able to continue to push the sport forward because we need people to watch to be able to continue doing what we're doing. Ashley, I'm going to be glued to the Tour of France and best of luck in your final season as a professional cyclist. Thanks for joining me on the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed chatting. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you're getting value from the podcast, can I ask you for one small favor before you head about your day? Can you make a point of sharing episodes that you have enjoyed with friends who you think need to hear that message? Or better yet, if you get the episode link and share it into a club, Facebook or WhatsApp group, whatever your particular club is using. I truly believe that we're building something valuable and something special here on the Roadman Cycling Podcast, but I need your help. I need the help of every single Roadman Cycling Podcast listener to spread the word. It is much appreciated, Roadman.